Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. This morning we're to the seventh and last of the kingdom parables in the parabolic discourse. The parable of the dragnet in verses 47 through 50. Working through the parabolic discourse has been the most challenging section of Matthew's gospel. Why? Well, because as we've seen, Jesus' parables are meant to veil truth just as much as they are to reveal it, right? Jesus said so himself. In Matthew 13, 10 through 11, the disciples said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered and said, To you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been granted. He spoke to in parables because without an interpretation being given, they couldn't understand. And we have two of these parables interpreted for us, but we don't have seven of them interpreted for us, do we? So we have to pull from contextual clues and try to do the best we can. And that's why when you go into the commentaries, you're going to see the commentators go in several different directions. As long as their interpretations are orthodox, we've got to have a lot of grace here because we're trying to rightly divide or accurately handle or cut straight the word of truth. And these parables are difficult. So by looking to Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat and the tares and the contextual clues throughout uh, Matthew in general and the parabolic discourse in particular, I've attempted to take every word seriously and to apply them consistently to rightly divide the word of truth. God help me. Uh, but this parable is no easier. Uh, Matthew thirteen forty seven through 50, again it says, again... The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this morning, we're going to divide this up into four points. And Michael had been on me because I hadn't been alliterating lately, so I went back to that today. Uh, So we have the story. We have the similarity between this uh, uh, parable and the parable of the wheat and the tares. We have the supplement, that is to say, what does this add? And the seriousness, how earnest we should take this. So we'll begin with the story itself in 47 through 48. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. Like all of the parables, this parable presented a story that would have been easily understood and relatable to Jesus' audience, which at this time was composed of only the twelve disciples. Remember, the crowds had gone away. He's talking to only the twelve. And we know that many of the twelve disciples had been fishermen prior to following Jesus, hadn't they? Meeting people where they are and relating to them with applications, terminology, and illustrations to which they can easily identify and understand is not being seeker-sensitive. It is God-honoring and a a neighbor-loving no-brainer. Jesus spoke with authority. Jesus spoke without compromise, but he did so in a way that, was, that lovingly met his audience exactly where they were, didn't he? A wise preacher, a wise teacher, a wise evangelist, or even just a wise disciple maker does the same thing. But as, as familiar as this story was to these men who either fished the Sea of Galilee or at the very least had lived around the Sea of Galilee their entire lives, it's not as familiar to us. So we're going to need to spend a few minutes thinking through the story to make sure we picture it rightly. Both then and now, people fished the Sea of Galilee in three primary ways. The first was with a line and a hook, which was used to catch uh, one fish at a time, of course. You're only going to catch one. Actually, I've caught two before. But usually, you just catch one on a line and a hook, don't you? That's what it's designed for. And that's the type of fishing that the Lord instructed Peter to do when they needed money. Remember when they needed the, the tax to pay in Matthew 17, 24 through 27? He told him to go and take a line and cast it into the sea. And that the fish would have the coin in its mouth. 
I'd say that's likely the only kind of fishing any of us here have done, wouldn't you? Probably. But the other two types of fishing involve nets. And those two types uh, were the type of commercial fishing that Jesus' disciples had done for a living. One of these types of net fishing involved a net that was small enough for one man to cast it. Uh, Peter and his brother Andrew were taking turns casting this sort of net when Jesus called them to become fishers of men. Remember that in Matthew 4, 18-19. It specifies that it was that one, you know, that single person casting net that they were using. And that's what, that net kind of folded up and you could carry it over the fisherman's shoulders. And as he waded out into the shallow water, he would look for a school of fish kind of swimming around. And when the fish were near enough, he would hold the center cord, right in the center of the net, and he would throw it. took a little bit of skill, but he would throw the, the net and it, and it tried to encircle all the fish. And there were weights on the net all around the sides of it. And the, the, the weights would kind of come in around the fish. And when he pulled the center thing, they would close together. And then you'd have a net full of fish and you could just drag it into the shore. That's the kind of fishing Peter and Andrew were doing when Jesus found them and called them to leave their nets and to follow him. But the second type of net is the one that's mentioned here. And this net is a very large drag net. It, it required a team of fishermen. One, one man ain't handling this. It's going to take a team of fishermen to operate. And sometimes the net, this kind of net would be so big it could cover as much as a half of a square mile in its radius. It's huge. That's what's being pointed out. It was pulled in a giant circle around the fish between two boats out in the deep water or by one boat sometimes if they would anchor one side of the net to the shore and then they would sweep all the way around and come back to the starting point. Floats were attached at the top of the nets and the same weights were attached at the bottom and anything that it, it formed a wall of net from the surface all the way to the top down to the bottom of the lake. This net could be located in relation to sightings of schools of fish. So they could say, hey, hey, there's a, there's a bunch of fish, we know where they are, or go to popular feeding areas. But because the net permitted nothing larger than the gauge of the net to escape, do you think they just got the fish that they were looking for? Well, no. All sorts of things other than the fish that they were after were caught. It swept up everything in its path. It would get weeds and it would get trash or other items that were dropped overboard by other boats or any sort of sea life that was in its path. And, of course, as it says here in our parable, it would get fish of every kind. The wording is general enough to cover the mess of stuff, not just fish. So fish actually is not mentioned here, but it's inserted. Uh, it's not in the Greek, but it's inserted by the translators. But I think it's rightly inserted. I think that's exactly what it's talking about, is that all kinds of fish are caught and that the good fish are separated from the bad fish. So the good fish being either big enough or healthy enough. Could even be talking about clean fish or, or unclean fish according to the law of God. But all this is caught in the net and then it's going to be sorted through um, once they get it to the shores. When the net was filled, it would take a large number of men several hours just to drag it up on the beach. Can you imagine? A net that's so big that it goes from the top of the sea to the bottom and it's a half mile in radius. Yeah, it's going to take some boys, ain't it? You're going to have, like, you're going to, have to have at least like 15 men or six like coal, something like that in order to get it all the way from the sea onto the shore. Then they sat down and they gathered the good fish or whatever was valuable in there into containers. If the fish were intended to be sold at a distant market, it would be put in containers with water to keep the fish alive so that the fish would be fresh on arrival. And those that were to be sold nearby, they were just placed in dry containers, usually just baskets where they were immediately sold and consumed, probably that same day or very soon after. But the bad, what did they do? Well, they just got rid of them. Usually by throwing them back in the sea. That's what they typically did with them. They're like, hey, this isn't any count. They didn't go out of their way. The sea's right there. And they just toss them back in. If they lived, they lived. If they died, well, oh well. That's just what happened. 
So now we have a picture of exactly what this process looked like. So let's think back to the parable of the wheat and the tares and take note of the similarities because there's a bunch of similarities. These are kind of twin parables that go together. I think they're not identical but paternal twins because I think there are some differences that actually matter but there's some amazing similarities. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. This is the interpretation. Jesus interprets this for us. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. And he will throw them in the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the similarities between these parables jump out at you. And we're going to consider uh, the similarities at two levels. First, the elements or language of the parable itself. And then the almost exact or identical explanation of the separation and judgment at the end. So we'll start with the elements or language of the parable. Even just reading these two parables side by side, you can't help but notice the similarity. But when you know a little bit more about the culture and you look at and take note of the many exact words and phrases that are used in both stories, the similarities become even more striking. So let's begin with not just the language, but the corresponding elements of the parables. Fishermen viewed their work as a kind of harvesting of the sea. We don't think of it that way necessarily, do we? But that's how they thought of it. The sea is like the farmer's field. In the imagery of the parable of the dragnet, the feeling of the, uh, the, per, the progressive feeling of the net, filling of the net directly related to the maturing of the crop. They're going through the water and they're gathering and it takes some time to get it. Just like the maturing, the crops, it also takes time to get it. And then when you have when, when the, the hauling of the net to the shore serves just like the harvest does. You're, you're getting it out of the water, you're dragging it to the shore. It's just like dragging all of the wheat and the tares out of the field and the baskets where the fish are put function in this story just like the granary would have or the barn in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Even the idea of letting the wheat and the tares grow up together in the field only to be sorted out once the harvest has come around is easily carried over to the parable of the dragnet if you just think of it for a minute. Could you imagine a fisherman looking over the side of the boat while dragging a huge net that encompasses a full half mile and with And within that huge net, he starts pulling, he starts dragging, and he notices that some undesirable fish or some other garbage is caught in the net while they're dragging. Would this expert fisherman say, Stop the boats! We have to to stop! We have a bad fish and we have some trash in the net. We have to stop right now and we have to get it out. Well, how foolish would that be, right? We know that's not going to happen. That's ridiculous. Of course, it's, there's going to be some good fish, there's going to be bad fish, and there's going to be a bunch of junk in the net. But the only sensible time for shorting it all out comes after the net has been dragged all the way to the shore where they harvest the catch, right? The application to the mixed state of the true people God being separated from the imposters at some later date is as obvious here as it is in the parable of the wheat and the tares, isn't it? It's already obvious that Jesus intended the disciples to connect these two parables in their mind. They heard him publicly give the parable of the wheat and the tares to the masses, all these Jewish scribes and Pharisees and crowds. And now he gets them alone. He gives them two other parables about him purchasing the whole world and gaining the treasure. And then he repeats another, another parable that is very, very similar to make sure they know that this still carries over even after, I believe, the kingdom has been established. That God, if He doesn't wink at sin with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jewish people in that old covenant, do you think He's going to now for us? Of course not. And notice also the exact words and phrases used in both parables. They're gathering fish of every kind, it says in verse 47, and that they gathered the good fish into containers in verse 48. And that same word, this gathering word, is used six times in the parable of the wheat and the tares in verse 28, 29, twice in verse 30, and again in the explanation in verse 40 and 41. 
And then we see the word uh, good and bad, kalos, and sar, uh, uh, sapros, which means bad, when referring to the fish. And that's exactly the same way it was used in 1233 for good fruit and bad fruit. Remember, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. So you see how the idea of the fish and the separating of the fish also is in the separating of that which we harvest. And earlier we see the same thing in 7, 18 through 19 in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. A good tree, kalos, cannot produce bad sapros fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, which is, of course, the ending fate for the tares and even for the fish here in the second uh, the second parable here, the second of the twin parables. And moving on from this to how they correspond in their elements and the exact words that are used in the parables themselves, you have almost the exact explanation of separation and judgment. Notice in verse uh, 40 and 41 in the interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the tares, it says, So it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of, the man, will send, the son of man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness. And compare that to verse 49 in the interpretation of the dragnet. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and will take the wicked from among the righteous. There's differences, but the main kernel there is, is, is the same, isn't it? I think even the differences are on purpose, but we'll get to that when we, let, when we get to the supplement. Why? That I think that it adds something new. Except for the fact that the initiative of the Son of Man is not mentioned. The remainder of the verses basically repeats the exact ideas of verse 41. The direct kingdom language isn't used, but from out of the midst of the righteous carries the same idea that, uh, that as they would remain shining forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father while the wicked are carried away in judgment. And the bad are simply the evil and not the more detailed all those who cause stumbling and those who produce lawlessness. And then take a, a look also at verse 42 next to verse 50. And we'll throw them into the furnace of fire, and in that, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's verse 42. Verse 50 is the exact same thing repeated. Word for word, verbatim, in the Greek, it's exactly the same. And we'll throw them into the furnace of fire, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One thing we have to take note of here is that Jesus interpreted this parable to say that unwanted fish being thrown away related to the wicked being thrown into the furnace of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that should stick out even more here than in other places that it shows up in Matthew. Because every other time that something's burned up, it's either chaff or it's useless branches or it's tares where, which were typically burned in order to dispose of them, right? That's how you got rid of chaff. That's how you got rid of branches. That's how you got rid of the poisonous tares. But as we've already mentioned, the unwanted fish, they were usually just thrown back in the sea. But they're not thrown back into the sea here in this parable, in the interpretation of the parable, are they? They're actually burned. Jesus intends that to stick out because that's not what you would expect. That's something new. The point is the judgment on the wicked. It's not just that they're useless, so you've got to get rid of them. It's not just that they're undesirable for the kingdom. It's that judgment is coming. Brothers and sisters, judgment is coming. The guilty will not go unpunished. Judgment is coming. It's not just annihilation. It's not just that you're gone. It's not just that you seek to exist. It's that you will not escape the judgment of a holy God. That's the point here. There's no escaping. Judgment is coming. It's sure. It's comprehensive. It's thorough and it's eternal. But let's look now. We know these two parables are similar, but is there anything that this parable supplements? When I say supplement, I mean something. You look it up. It means something that completes or enhances something else when it's added to it. The question's been asked, why did Jesus add this parable? Does it teach something distinctive? Something that's not yet been touched upon in any, other, in any of the other parables, particularly in the parable of the tares among the wheat? And I think that there's possible reasons to think that it does. Now remember, parables are notoriously difficult to interpret, right? 
It's part of the reason that they're even given. So admittedly, this is a lot of content. You know, that was pretty short, first two points. This one we're going to labor on a little, a little while. But stick with me, and I think you'll find it worthwhile. The reason I think that this actually does add something, that there's something new being pointed to than is being pointed to in the parable of the wheat and the tares, is because there's a logical and chronological development in the kingdom parables. That's the first reason. And that, we're going to spend some time unpacking that for us. So this will kind of serve as a, a sermon on the parable of the dragnet, but also kind of a tie all the parables together and show this logical and chronological flow. There's no mention of the Son of Man in the parable of the dragnet and the absence of covenant language. We're going to discuss why that that's significant while we go through this logical, logical progression as well. And that the fisherman, instead of the son of man, is the, is, the, is the person that's doing the action. And that fish of every variety are caught in, in you know, other than in the way of the wheat being sold with the tares. So, we're going to go through that now. The kingdom parables begin with Jesus speaking to the crowds and presenting the parable of the sower. That's where they start, right? And followed by Jesus explaining the meaning to the disciples. So the parable of the sower is in, in verses 3 through 9, and the meaning is in verse 18 through 23. In Jesus' explanation, we see that the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, but the crowds don't get that detail. They only know that there's a sower. Why? Because Jesus identifying himself as the sower, as one like the Son of Man, it would have absolutely set them off because Son of Man is a divine title. Remember that. So in Daniel 7, 13-14, we get the picture of what the Son of Man would do. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, all the nations of men, and every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He plants that seed in the parable of the sower, doesn't he? He starts there. That this is the Son of Man that's, that's planting these seeds. This is a figure of universal authority and sovereignty. It's in accordance with a vision that, and, the, and this context of judgment, it, it goes on. It says uh, in Daniel 7.10, a river of fire was flowing and coming from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. And then in verse 21 through 22, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and at that, when that time arrived when the saints took possession of his kingdom. So there's judgment coming by the Ancient of Days who's going to establish a kingdom. He's going to take it away from a people and give it to his saints. That's, that's, the, that's how the Son of Man is presented in Daniel 7. He's introduced as this figure at the beginning in the parable of the Son of Man. The, I mean the, the sower. He's presented as the Son of Man. He would execute judgment as a divine judge himself. But in the parable of the sower, we get that alluded to because that's, that's Daniel 7. But we don't see it even in the interpretation of the parable of the sower. We see no prediction of judgment. Just the mention of the title, Son of Man. We only, uh, we only get that the, the most of the soil on which the seed falls fails to bring forth fruit. And only the seed sown on the good ground brings forth fruit. More details come as the parables progress. There's a logical progression and a chronological order to these. We see that immediately in the second parable of the wheat and the tares. We once again see the uh, unidentified man here. He doesn't tell the crowds who this man is, sowing his good seed. But we also see what the enemy's doing in the next one. The enemy's active too, isn't he? The enemy is sowing tares amongst the wheat. We also learn that the wheat and the tares are not going to be allowed are going to be allowed to grow up together until the harvest when the tares are bundled up to be burned and the wheat is gathered into the barn. So now we get this, this idea that we saw in Daniel 7 fleshed out a little bit more in the wheat and the tares, don't we? Starts with the parable of the sower, but now we see the judgment and the division, the separation that there's the saints and those that are judged. Then in the third and fourth parables, we see the related parables of the mustard seed and the leaven as told to the masses. The parable of the mustard seed pictures the kingdom of God starting small and insignificant, but it doesn't stay there, does it? It gradually grows and its growth is unprecedented. Does that sound like Daniel 7 to y'all? Of course it does. 
And in 1332, that this smaller than all the other seeds, this mustard seed, but when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. This bush becomes a tree. And the outcome of the parable is made clear from the context also of Daniel. That, that what, what is that alluding to? That the... the uh, the birds of the, come and nest in its branches. Well, also in Daniel, three chapters before this son of man language is given, we see Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of a kingdom, wasn't he? And he had a dream. And when Daniel interprets it, he says that your kingdom is a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong. And its height reached the sky. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant. And it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. And the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. And all the living creatures fed themselves on it. In his interpretation of the king's vision, Daniel explains that... Uh, here's verse 22, 20 through 22. The tree you saw is you, O king, for you've become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion has reached to the end of the earth. It's not eternal, but he's saying you're a great kingdom that has universal dominion over the whole earth. It fell pretty soon after, but that's what it got to. Under Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire had brought unparalleled advancement in almost every field of endeavor. Architecture, uh, agriculture, education, the arts, literature, economics, and many others. Even given the atrocities that took place, Babylon had brought prosperity to a large part of the known world at the time. In the king's vision, the birds and animals who benefited from the tree's shade and food were the other nations of the world. Does that sound like Daniel 7? It does, doesn't it? They've got this logical progression. It's unfolding more and more as you progress through the parables. The implication of this parable of the mustard seed seems obvious. The kingdom of heaven would grow from tiny beginnings to a great tree and would ultimately provide shelter, protection, and benefit to the entire world exceeding anything that it came before it. When Christians live in obedience to the Lord, we are a blessing to everybody around us. You want an evidence? Look at the West. Not what we're becoming, but what we have been. A, 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 a people that had a primarily Christian worldview have became a, a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That's what happens. Relatedly, the parable of the leaven shows how successful this large kingdom that spreads out over the whole earth and blesses all the nations will be. Jesus pointed to the certainty of the seed's growth until it exceeded its expected size, but now he appeals to the mysterious forces of life within the natural process of the spread of leaven until it transforms the whole 60-pound lump. That's what's pointed to in the parable of the leaven. That's not how leaven usually spreads, guys. But the kingdom of heaven is going to do that. It's going to be just like the unprecedented growth of the mustard seed. We're going to have an unprecedented spread of the kingdom. We see big and comprehensive together. Big in the parable of the mustard seed and comprehensive impact in the third and fourth parables. It'll be gradual, but success is certain because it's the purpose of God. And now we see a transition from the four, from the four parables that are delivered to the masses to the three that are only given to the disciples. But before we see those last three parables, the disciples make a request in verse 36. Explain the parable of the tares and the wheat. And in this explanation, the man who sowed the good seed in the field is again identified as the Son of Man. And as we've seen, the language used in this explanation is used throughout the book of Matthew relating to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and thus the ending of the Jewish age and the fulfilling of the prophecies of the Son of Man. That I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. After the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus gives the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of greatest price, which I presented as being uh, how that Jesus purchased the whole field or the whole world to gain the treasure of the kingdom of heaven so that that mustard seed could expand to the whole earth and the leaven could spread throughout the whole lump by fulfilling the whole law, culminating in offering His own life to save His people from their sins according to the will of the Father. Do you see this logical progression of the parables? It's logical. It's chronological. It builds on, they build on each other, all pointing back to Daniel 7 and the full and complete fulfillment of everything that was promised there, right? In, 
in this judgment and corresponding establishment of the kingdom, we see what he points to later in Matthew 21, 39 through 40. Jesus predicts that the Jews are going to kill him and he tells them the outcome. Did you never read in the scriptures that the stone which the builders rejected this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Now tell me that that's not a fulfillment of Daniel 7.22 that the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. It's taken away from the covenant-breaking Jews, and it's given to the saints, just like Daniel 7 said it would be. That's the prophecy of the Son of Man. And it's all laid out parable by parable right through this parabolic discourse. But not only do we see this logical progression through the parables, but we also see that in these two different parables, as similar as they are, you have the absence of the title Son of Man now and the absence of covenant language in the parable of the dragnet. I think it's at least possible that the phrase end of the age is used differently in these two parables. I think perhaps the, the end of the age referred to in the parable of the dragnet is speaking of the end of the church age when the final judgment at the end of time will take place while the end of the age in the parable of the wheat and the tares is referring to the end of the Jewish age in 70 AD. Well, why? Well, look at verse 40 through 41. In verse 40 through 41, when he's speaking to the who crowds? The Jewish crowds. And he's warning them of judgment. What does he say? So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. And he tells the disciples, The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. Note the title, Son of Man, and the explicit covenantal language. As the prophet, Jesus is speaking to those under the law and sending forth his angels to battle against these covenant breakers. These were the Jews who were under the law. They, have, they were lawless. They had rejected the law of God. They wouldn't follow Jesus' clear explanation of the law of God. They had just discredited themselves and invited the judgment of this son of man figure who would take the kingdom away from them and give it to a people producing the fruit thereof. Right? So you have the Son of Man mentioned because that's what the Son of Man would do. And you have the covenant language mentioned as well in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Both mention the Son of Man. Both the mention of the Son of Man and the covenant language is glaringly and seemingly intentionally absent in the parable of the dragnet. This especially sticks out because all of the other wording of the two parables is often exactly the same. But notice, 1349, So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth. No mention of them being sent by the Son of Man here, who is to deliver the kingdom to the saints. Why? Because it's already happened in the logical flow of these parables. That already happened previously. The Son of Man prophecy has already been fulfilled, so it's not mentioned again once we get to the parable of the dragnet. And what will the angels do? Well, the angels will take out the wicked from among the righteous, not the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. Why? Because this separation is not of the Jewish people who are under the law. Do you see it? It's different. It's different because it's later once the kingdom has been established on the whole earth. And it's not people who are under the law. We're not under the law. We're under grace. So it's not the covenant. Lawlessness is not mentioned. Wickedness is still mentioned, but it's not under the old covenant, the old dispensation of that time. So 70 AD marked the end of the Jewish age, which fulfills Daniel 7, 13 through 14 that we've already looked at. The logical and chronological progression of the parables has taken us past the judgment of the Jews in 70 AD to the expansion of the kingdom after Jesus purchased the whole world and established his kingdom. You see that? And then lastly, last thing I want to point out here is that the fisherman replaces the Son of Man and fish from every variety are, there, are mentioned instead of wheat and tares. The binary, just wheat and tares. Wheat sowed by the Son of Man, tares sowed by the enemy. But here we have the fishermen gathering up every kind of fish instead. Let's look at those two clues one at a time. So the fisherman replaces the Son of Man. The Son of Man is replaced by unnamed fishermen. Undoubtedly, they would have reminded at least Peter and Andrew of their calling that we've already mentioned, right? 
follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. The son of the man, man is the one who sold the, wheat, uh, sold the good seed when he was in his ministry here and some heard and some rejected because they followed the tares that were sold by the evil one. We've already identified that as the Pharisees who were that, those plants that the father did not plant and they would be uprooted, right? They were sons of the evil one. So that was the son of man. But now we have the fishermen. And that's the disciples. And guys, it's me and you. Down to this very day, we're supposed to be fishers of men, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, letting people know about the good news of the gospel and calling them to submit to King Jesus, right? That's who we are. There, our net is cast over a wide cross-section of people. And while the message saves some, it will leave others unconvinced. Those who have failed to respond to it are presumably among these bad fish of this parable. Just like the believing Jews were separated from unbelieving Jews in 70 AD, true believers will be separated from those in the kingdom, because we've already said the kingdom is already in some sense, right? It's in our midst. There are those who aren't believers, though. You look around, you see a lot of them, and they're evident, and you see a lot of them that aren't as evident, but they're still just masquerading. Do you think God knows the difference in the obvious ones? Do you think God knows the difference in the ones that aren't as obvious? He does. He knows. So fish of every variety also instead of wheat and tares. William Hendrickson points both of these possibilities out. He says one might perhaps point to a phrase like fish of every variety and point out that at least this feature had not been mentioned before and in this connection one might begin to think of the gospel as God's instrument for gathering men of every nation, of every climate, of every age, of every social group, of every degree of education or of intelligence that God's going to get all kinds of fish in that large net as we cast it out as these fishers among men. I think that's at least a possibility. Could be a stretch because some kinds of fish would all be rejected because of the Levitical rules. You know, if you press down on this too much, if it had fins or scales, it couldn't be eaten. Leviticus 11, 9 through 12. Would have been ruled, it would have ruled out eels and possibly catfish, which were common in Galilee because of their resemblance to snakes, uh, Leviticus 7:10. And of course, some fish caught would be too small or too diseased. So they're all going to be sorted through. But there wouldn't be every kind of fish represented in their hall because they would have thrown out every single one of the catfish. So I want to admit the weakness of this, but I still think there's something there because in the wheat, you either have wheat or you have tares. And it's obvious. You have one thing, the Jews, the believing Jews, or the tares, the unbelieving Jews. But here we get a net that catches all kinds of fish and trash, and the angels are going to sort through all that. One thing we have to know is that once Jesus has risen from the dead, the disciples expand their ministry from being sent to the Jews only to being sent as fishers in the whole world. They go from Matthew 10, 5 through 7, that the 12 that Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go to the way of the Gentiles, and do not go to any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to who? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're heralds of the kingdom to the Jews, and that's all they are. They're not fishers of every type of men yet. But then, after the resurrection, what do we get? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, if, if this is right, not pressing too hard, of every kind of fish. Go and gather in everybody that will hear, baptizing them all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is another end of the age. He's with us. Is he just with us till the end of the destruction of Jerusalem, guys? He's with us now, isn't he? He's with us even now. And he will still sort things out, just like he did in a, in a real coming. Christ came in judgment in 78, 70 AD. But that was not the second coming. And that second coming is still coming to a city near you. And cities all far away from you as well. It's going to happen. And there's still going to be a division of all the people at that last time. You see the same idea in Acts 1.8 when Jesus, uh, before he ascends for the last time, and, and they, they ask, is it this time you'll restore the kingdom to, uh, to the Jews? And he says, it's not for you to know the times, the epochs that the fathers have appointed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria... And in the remotest parts of the world, that's every kind of fish I can think of right there, isn't it? 
the closest to home ones, the farthest away ones, everybody in between. We've got this fisher of man idea developing after Christ's ministry when we get to the apostolic age and the church age. If you don't like difficult to interpret texts, then the book of Matthew is not going to be your favorite. Once we get to the Olivet Discourse, we're going to see this same difficulty. Part of Matthew 24 and 25 has already been fulfilled. And part of it is still to come. And we have to understand this difficulty and try to be faithful to the text, yet humble, realizing that it's not real hard to figure... I mean, it's not real easy to figure it all out and parse it. I believe that is foreshadowed even here in these two parables of the wheat and the tares of a age that is fulfilled in 70 A.D. and the age to come in the church age. I believe it's foreshadowed here and then it even does it again in 24 and 25 where it's also difficult once again. There's different approaches, different people. Eschatology is hard. It's that thousand years of peace that everybody likes to fight about, right? Um, that it's hard. So we have to be very, very, very humble. And how much is future and how much is past? People fight over that all the time. What we have to do is do our best and say, Lord, I'm trying my best to be faithful to the text. God, help me. Have mercy on me. Jesus is enough. I'm trying to get this right, but I know my, my vision's faulty. I'm falling. My brain's not sharp enough, but it don't have to be because our hope is in Christ, right? But we know that a full futurist believes that none of the prophecies have been fulfilled, and that's heresy, right? And we know that a full preterist believes all the prophecies have been fulfilled. And guess what? That's heresy too. The truth is somewhere in the middle. Now how far we go, that's, that's the hard part. We've got to try to be faithful. And we're going to. We're going to be getting to all of that discourse. And we're going, to, we're going to take it off seriously just like I've tried to be through this parabolic discourse. We're going to approach it seriously but humbly and try to get to the truth anyway. But... Both of these positions, uh, full futurist and full preterist, are wrong. So let's, let's get it right, as, as right as we can, and trust in the grace of God. So the first 33 of Olivet Discourse, first 33 verses of chapter 24, seem to refer to 70 AD, while 25, there's areas that clearly point to the end of the world, where you're separating the sheep from the goats. At the end of the church age, there was a... a, a I'm sorry, at the end of the Jewish age there was a separation of the wheat and the tares and a judgment and there will be an even greater one at the end of the church age. During the present era, which is the church age, God permits unbelief and unrighteousness. And this is MacArthur. But the time is coming when his toleration will end and his judgment begins. And the first phase of judgment will be the separation of the wicked from the righteous. The dragnet of God's judgment moves silently through the sea of mankind and draws all men to the shores of eternity for final separation to their ultimate destiny. Believers to eternal life and unbelievers to eternal damnation. And that takes us to the seriousness, our last point. If I'm correct, this text doesn't tell us about a, a past fiery destruction of Jerusalem. But it instead warns us of the future fiery torments of a literal hell. No doctrine is avoided more or despised more by the world than the doctrine of hell, is it? But it's too clear and mentioned far too often in Scripture to either deny it or to ignore it. And even though there's no greater authority in the red letters than there is in any other portion of Scripture, and guys, get that right. The red letters aren't special in any way that the rest of the Word of God isn't special. It's all God's Word. But it's still worth noting that Jesus spoke of hell more than all of the prophets and apostles combined. Not more than any of them did. Jesus spoke about hell more than all the, all the prophets and all the apostles combined. If you don't have the words of Jesus, you can't even get a healthy understanding of the doctrine of hell. Many of us say that it's unloving to talk about hell. But because of Jesus' great love, the doctrine of hell had special emphasis in Jesus' teaching from the beginning to the end of His ministry. It is unloving not to talk about hell. Because it's real. Up to this point in Matthew, we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, 522, whoever says you fool will be guilty enough to go into fiery hell, didn't he? And verse 529, if your right eye makes you stumble, then tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better to lose one of the parts of your, of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus declares that the wicked uh, sons of the kingdom will be cast out 
out into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in 8.12. That is, once again, an allusion to this very real place. Hell. That unbelieving Capernaum would descend into Hades in 11.23. And Jesus isn't done. Later in Matthew we'll see 18, 8-9. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better to enter life crippled and lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. He asked the evil and hypocritical scribes and Pharisees in 23.33, How shall you escape the sentence of hell? On many other occasions, Jesus alludes to hell and warns of damnation. I have those in your notes. You'll have this later. I'm not going to go through every one of them. But just in the book of Matthew, you have several, several more. You don't even have to go to Mark, Luke, or John because it's hell, 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 hell over and over and over again throughout the book of Matthew. Let's consider two things that we know from Scripture about hell. More could certainly be said. But hell is a place of constant torment, misery, and pain. Guys, take this seriously. That torment involves darkness where no light can penetrate and nothing can be seen. Throughout the numberless eons of eternity, the damned will never again see light. Hell involves the uncertainty of eternal darkness. Hell's torment is also described as a fire that will never go out and cannot be extinguished in Mark 9, 43. And from, and from which the damned will never find relief. We have here fire with no light. Could anything be more terrifying than the idea of darkness and fire? Usually you can only have one or the other. But in hell you've got both. Is it literal fire? Well, the argument can be made that since hell was created for spirit beings, right? It's created for the devil and his angels. And angels don't have nerve endings that the fire can't be literal. Actually, John Calvin even entertains that idea and says it's a possibility. And it may be, but let me assure you that literal or not, this is terrible torment, misery, and pain. It might not be literal fire, but don't let that comfort you so that you don't take it seriously. Hell may be worse than literal fire, but it won't be better. Whatever you think about hell, it's worse than you're imagining. We're using words like darkness, terrible word, eternal darkness, fire, eternal fire, everlasting torment. We're using these words because it's the closest we can get in in language to communicate the horrors of hell, but it's worse than you think. It's terrible. Hell is certainly a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, but not only is it a place of constant torment, misery, and pain, hell will involve the eternal torment of both body and soul. We ask our kids in the catechism questions. We say, have you a soul as well as a body? And what's the answer? Yes. I have a soul that can never die. That's a comforting thought if that soul finds itself reigning with Christ in His kingdom, but not every soul does. Whether in heaven or in hell, neither the soul nor the body is annihilated at death. And they never will be. Nothing will be so horrible about hell as its endlessness. Jesus uses the same word, ionios, or eon, where we get eon, to describe the duration of hell as he does when he describes the duration of heaven. In Matthew 25, 46, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. When an unsaved person dies, his soul goes into everlasting torment. And at the resurrection of the dead, the bodies of the unsaved will be raised, and those resurrected bodies will join the soul in hell's torments. He casts both body and soul into hell. Matthew 10, 28, John 5, 29, Acts 24, 15, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Just as believers will be fitted with resurrected bodies so they can enjoy the glories of heaven forever, unbelievers will be fitted with resurrected bodies so they can endure the torments of hell without being destroyed. Guys, this is serious. And regardless of how we look at this fulfillment of the wheat and the tares, we've got two points that can't escape us. 
There's no hiding from God. He sees you. He sees you right where you are. He doesn't just see your body. He sees down into your heart. He doesn't just see the mask, what you put forward. He sees what's behind the mask. You can hide from people. You can convince people of anything. We can think you're the most upstanding, devout Christian in the whole world. But there is a day when the reapers will come. The angels will come and they will separate the good from the bad. They know. Father reveals it to them and they are perfect in their separation. And we know that the wicked will not go unpunished. The holiness of God has been offended. And just like the fish, you would think are just thrown back into the water. No, no, no. They're not just thrown back into the water. They're burned up because it's not just about you're not good enough. It's that you're wicked. And if you'll take a look into that dark heart of yours today, you know it's true, don't you? Well, where can I hide? You said there's no hiding from God. Well, actually, there is one place. That our lives must be hidden in God, in Christ. That we must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. None of you and me are good enough at all. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We are guilty, but He came and died for us. Every song we sang pointed to that. There was enough gospel in those songs to save everybody in the world, wasn't there, this morning? We clothe ourselves in Christ. We bind ourselves in Christ. Madison's been broken lately. She's been very torn up about uh, her sin. She's been asking questions about what's blasphemy and what's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and have I maybe committed the sin that can't be forgiven? I told her, if you're worried about committing the sin that can't be forgiven, then you've not, forget, you've not committed it yet. Right? You don't look inward to find assurance. You can't. If you look in there, you're going to be broken. You're going to recognize you're a lawbreaker. The law, yes, it shows us our duty. And yes, it makes clear our condemnation. But it shows us also our need of a Savior. And we run to that Savior. This Son of Man has made us saints because He has bound ourselves to Him by giving us faith in His completed work. Look there. Cling to Him. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Praise God, there is a hiding place. Kind of gracious, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for giving it to us. Lord, for giving us faith. Lord, for giving us even the grace that teaches our hearts to fear, but also this great grace that makes our fears relieved. The great gravity that we are sinners, but the great gladness that You are a great Savior. Oh, Lord, that there's no sin too great. That if we believe in Christ, it cannot be forgiven. Lord, let the law chase us to the foot of the cross. It can chase us to the cross, but it can chase us no farther. Lord, deliver us from the guilt of our sins. Anchor us to Christ. and Let us find our consolation there that we would be gathered into your barns, that we would be your good fish and not punished eternally in your wrath. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.